So good afternoon, everybody. It's great. It's great to be back. I missed. I missed the seminar. I missed all of you. Thanks for coming back. Yes. Yeah, sorry. 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 Somebody complained the other day that I, apparently when I talk, my at the end of my sentences, my my voice falls, and people with trouble hearing, there are lots of people with trouble hearing, can't hear. So wave your wave if I uh, if I. You can't hear me. I'm going to try to keep my voice up. Sorry. So here we are, back at the church, back at seminar. Uh, we're going to, uh, through the end of August, study um, some but not all of the texts from my little 1990s compendium that I made when I was at Zen Center, a selection of a few of the many, 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 many thousands of pages of sutras from the Pali Canon. And, and these are uh, short texts that seem to me at the time to be particularly relevant uh, for our practice, which, as you know, is, is not really different from the practice of those old suttas. So tonight I want to talk about uh, what they say is Buddha's very first sermon the Turning the Wheel of the Dharma Sutra. Next week, uh, I want to talk about the Parable of the Saw. And the week after that, the Elder's Sutra and the Sutra on the Better Way to Live Alone. Those two are translated and commented on by Thich Nhat Hanh. And then during the month of, month of August, we're going to hear from uh, our priests. August 2nd, Neil on the Kachayana Gatra, Gata Sutta. So Neil will be the first in the line of speakers. And then in the week after that will be uh, August 9th, Jeff on the Nagiya Sutta about friendliness. The 16th, John on those of Kesaputta. And on the 23rd, Marianne will uh, speak on the simile of the snake. And all these texts are in the little booklet that you can easily uh, download from the website as a PDF. So everybody can, you don't need to print it out. You can have it on your device or just read it on the computer. Also, uh, you know, from the beginning, we designed the Dharma Seminar to make sense to you and be of value to you, even if you don't read the text. So it's not like, an, you know, a requirement that you read the text. Uh, also, uh, since we're starting a new round of uh, seminars, and there might be some new people, uh, I know there are here in the room, and probably there's some new people online. Just to say what we've said for 25 years or so about the seminar, that the intention is that, is that um, we commit ourselves to being together for a topic so that we can have a sense of shared uh, dialogue and, and conversation over time. So it's not a drop-in group. You know, we don't know who's going to show up any given week. Of course, uh, things come up, and not everybody does come every single week. But the idea is that you, you'll come while we're covering a topic, in this case, through the end of August. And uh, then, you know, people have other things to do. Maybe they don't come for a few rounds, and then they jump on later when we have another topic. That's the idea of the seminar, the way, the way it's designed. And so far, it's more or less works that way. Also. Uh, we used to, I think, I'm not actually sure about this, but I, I think we used to ask for a suggested donation. 
And uh, in these days, with so much online practice, I'm not sure we even do that anymore, but we hope that people will make donations so that we can keep doing this. So that's stuff that I, we, it's our understanding. I never mention it, but I thought it would be good to mention it tonight. Can you still hear me? Oh, that's good. Good. Okay, so the sutra on setting in motion the wheel of Dharma. And it's called that because, as the first thing that the Buddha said after his awakening, it, in fact, sets in motion the wheel of Dharma, the wheel that's still turning, uh, coming on 3,000 years later. The story goes that after his awakening, the Buddha was naturally very satisfied and very content and very happy. He did not feel any need to share his understanding. He assumed that no one who had not done what he did, which is to say practice a lot and see for themselves, would be able to understand anyway. So what's there to say? But uh, various gods in various heavens, and, and maybe we could understand that in contemporary terms as somehow the, the force of nature or the unseen virtues of the earth and the cosmos and, and perhaps of humanity or itself, life itself, somehow urged him to teach. He felt that call in himself. So he decided he would try. And so he kind of walked down the road and see who would show up first. And the first person who showed up was a wandering ascetic. There were lots of wandering ascetics in those days with various kinds of practice. So he ran into this wandering ascetic and he sort of explained to him what he was teaching. And this wandering ascetic listened politely and was not at all impressed. He said to Buddha, well, that's nice, you know, good for you. Take care of yourself, I'm going on. So that was the Buddha's first uh, experience with sharing the teaching, which I think uh, I really appreciate, you know, that story. It's very instructive, actually. Uh, because uh, I think uh, I feel, and I bet some of you also feel, that the Buddha's teaching is very beautiful, uh, very true, pretty convincing, very important for the world. But if you don't have the ears to hear it, if you're not the person for it, or it's not the right time for you to hear it, you'll hear it and you won't be impressed much. <laughs> so. I love it that that's the first experience that the Buddha had. But, but next he ran into the five ascetics, wouldn't you know it, by chance. He ran into the five ascetics with whom he had practiced austerities for a number of years. But uh, when the Buddha decided to give up practicing austerities and accepted um, delicious food, not only food, delicious food, but also from the hand of a beautiful young maiden, the ascetics thought this was really outrageous, and they immediately dropped him. 
So when they saw him now coming down the road, they uh, kind of tried to avoid him. But eventually they did stop and listen. And this sutra is said to be a record of what he said to them. So this context is actually not mentioned in the sutra itself, but it's worth knowing because it tells you that the Buddha was speaking specifically to these people. And he always did that. He, the things that he taught, and you'll see from the other sutras that we'll read, he always taught in response to particular people and, and their understanding or their interests or their issues. So he didn't say the same thing to everyone. He was always responding appropriately to conditions rather than just repeating some kind of absolute doctrine to everybody who he met. So he begins this sermon with the idea of the middle way between indulging in sense desires at one extreme and asceticism on the other. Not necessarily because this is the first and most important thing for him to say in order to turn the wheel of Dharma, but because it was the five ascetics he happened to run into and this is what they needed to hear. And I expect that uh, when they heard it at first, they were not happy to hear it. But by the end of the Buddha's talk, they felt better, as we will read. So I'm going to start from the beginning uh, and, and read you some passages and then comment on them. Thus have I heard, as sutras always begin, Ananda is the speaker always, thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was staying in the Deer Park at Isipatana near Varanasi, and there he addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five, meaning the five ascetics. Thus, there are two extremes which should not be followed, bhikkhus, by someone who has gone forth. Devotion to pursuing sense pleasures, which is low, vulgar, worldly, ignoble, and produces no useful result, and, which they would have agreed with, yes, right, but then he said, but also, devotion to self-denial, which is painful, ignoble, and also produces no useful result, which I think would have shocked the five ascetics. Avoiding both extremes, bhikkhus, the middle way that a Tathagata has awakened to gives vision and insight, knowledge, and leads to peace, profound understanding, full realization, and to nirvana. That's the opening passage. This phrase, to go forth, means to go forth into the way, to enter the way, to begin uh, the lifetime and many lifetimes journey of awakening. As you know, the Buddha's way is called the middle way, neither, as he says here, indulging in sense pleasures or self-denial. And this is no shocking or amazing insight. I mean, this is commonplace 
teaching throughout the world everywhere, just be moderate in everything. Everybody understands this and everybody teaches it. Parents teach it to children and always have. Don't be obsessive and addicted to pleasures. In the end, too much of a good thing becomes unpleasant anyway. It becomes too much. Addiction, as we know, is not pleasant. It's a problem. And uh, any overemphasis on sense, sense pleasures is distracting. And it, it's going to prevent you from focusing your energies on other things, like just being a decent human being. If you're busy pursuing pleasures all the time, you don't have time to be decent or kind. So it's good advice, you know, common sense advice. Just be, just be moderate in what you do. Self-denial, on the other hand, which religious people, like the five ascetics, often think of as virtuous, here the Buddha says, this can also be obsessive and self-centered and just as ignoble, as he says, as sensual indulgence. So don't do that either. You know, there can be a contest, you know, who can eat less, <laughs> who, can, who can endure more cold, and so on and so on. But the rest of the sutra makes it clear that the Buddha means more than the usual everyday common sense instruction to be moderate. Because, as he says in a minute, the middle way promises, this is a quote, vision and insight knowledge and leads to peace, profound understanding, full realization, and to nirvana, which we just read. And that's not going to be achieved simply by being moderate in eating and drinking and so on. In Mahayana Buddhism, which is based on the foundational teachings of emptiness, this idea of the middle way is reinterpreted to mean not simply moderation in all things, but more literally and philosophically almost, a middle position between two extreme positions, existence and non-existence. To say that things exist and do not, not exist, they only exist, is an extreme position that will inevitably lead you to attachment to existence, which will cause suffering. To say, on the other hand, that things don't really exist and that they therefore don't really matter is to fall into nihilism and despair, which is a different kind of suffering. So the middle way between these two extreme views is the view of emptiness, which says that all things both exist and don't exist at the same time. And that is an accurate way of understanding impermanence and change. Things exist and don't exist. That's how they change, moment by moment. 
This is the vision and profound understanding that the Buddha says leads to insight, peace, and nirvana. So from a Mahayana point of view, that's really what the Buddha is talking about here. And of course, if you had that view, you would practice moderation in your sensual and relational life. But the question is, how do you develop that insight, that view? And that's what the Buddha next says, talks about. And what is the middle way that a Tathagata has awakened to, which gives vision, insight, knowledge, and leads to peace, profound understanding, full realization, and nirvana? What is, that? What is the way to realize that? It is the Noble Eightfold Path. That is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right, here it's translated, right collectedness, but it means right meditation, right concentration. This is the middle way that a Tathagata has awakened to. So here, it's clear that the middle way the Buddha is talking about is not just being moderate in your approach to sensuality. He began with this point to get the attention of the five ascetics because he felt if they went on the way they were going, they would not, they would not get very far. They, they had a kind of abnormal relationship to the sensual world. And he thought that the path required that we have what we might call a normal relationship to the sensual world. What he really means by the middle way is the thoroughgoing practice of a way of life defined here as the Eightfold Path, which includes the correct view, correct intention or commitment, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right of mindfulness, and right concentration. These eight describe a total life reorientation, including the reformation of all, all one's actions of body, speech, and mind, and Practicing the Eightfold Path, he says, will lead you to a completely different understanding of life and a completely different way of life. And that insight will bring you peace and nirvana, a kind of ultimate peace. Next, the Buddha teaches the five ascetics the foundation of the Eightfold Path which is the Four Noble Truths. So these two most fundamental Buddhist teachings, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, which folds into the Fourth Noble Truth, are included, of course they would be, in the very first um, sermon the Buddha gave. So here's what he says about the First Noble Truth and so on. Because there is this Noble Truth about dissatisfaction, Birth is problematic. Aging is hard. 
Dying is also hard to bear. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are also painful. Association with what you dislike is unpleasant. Being apart from what you like is unpleasant. Not getting what you want is unpleasant. In brief, the five grasped aggregates are unsatisfactory. So this is the first truth, the truth of suffering. And here in this short paragraph, the Buddha discusses it in various ways. Our translator here uses the word uh, unsatisfactoriness or dissatisfaction to translate dukkha, which has commonly been translated as suffering. And what it means in this first instance is that, is that things are always going to end up to be basically unsatisfactory. This doesn't mean that there are no happy moments. There are happy moments, but they don't last. And that's painful. And even when they seem to last, when you can repeat them again and again and again and again, the more you repeat them, the more likely it is that they will end up being unsatisfactory. You will get tired of them. So the cause of unsatisfactoriness is not in the things themselves, it's in our mind. Our human mind is restless. It is of the nature to compare and criticize. And once it gets into doing that, eventually it always ends up with things are wanting. They're not as they should be. They're not as we would imagine them to be, as we would like them to be. We will always want, eventually, we will always want more than or other than what we have. So everything and anything will be eventually unsatisfactory. So in that sense, everything is unsatisfactory. But, but never mind that. Beyond that, there are lots of things in life that really are nasty, really are unpleasant, unwanted, difficult, and yet are unavoidable in any human life. And the Buddha lists a few of these. He begins, birth is, at the beginning, right? He begins at the beginning. Birth is problematic. Aging is hard. Dying is also hard to bear. We commonly think, at least I do, of birth as a happy thing. Uh, you know, somebody has a child or a grandchild. It's a cause for joy. But also, it's certainly true that birth is a risky that uh, sometimes women die in childbirth, babies die, or are born with problems, or are born okay and then die soon after, which actually happens a lot throughout history. It is commonplace. It happens all the time. And even a happy, perfectly normal birth, so I'm told, is actually pretty painful and difficult for a mother and child. 
People tell me this, but I also have seen it on uh, Ask the Midwife, Call the Midwife, <laughs> where they're always you know, in a lot of pain and suffering when they're giving birth. Yeah, so birth is, a pro is problematic, you know, even though we might say it's a joyful thing, it's also problematic. Aging is hard. Dying is also hard to bear. I keep telling myself and my friends that the last years of our lives are actually the best years, which I do actually believe. At the same time, there's no denying that old age is hard and uh, dying is hard to bear, or at least the thought we have of the fear of dying or the worry we have about getting sick and dying is hard to bear. Certainly, uh, the dying of those we love is certainly difficult. We know that. Grief is one of the hardest things in life, as the Buddha says here. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are all painful. And there is nobody who can avoid these things. Association with what you dislike is unpleasant. Being apart from what you like is unpleasant. Not getting what you want is unpleasant. And these are all basic causes of suffering. I think we all understand them very well. And if you really think about it, pretty much every single day you experience perhaps mild or sometimes strong versions of some or all of these things. And the older you get, the more obvious it is life is not a picnic, you know, it's not easy you're going to go through some difficult things. So, so apart from the basic unsatisfactoriness of anything is the basic difficulty of so many things that are unavoidable in life. And at the end of all of this, Buddha says, in brief, the five grasped aggregates or skandhas are unsatisfactory. So the five aggregates, the five skandhas, as we know, is the traditional Buddhist way of describing the experience of being a human being. There are five um, kinds of experience that make up our human experience. The first one is, is form or physical matter. We, we have bodies, and that's an indelible experience of being human. The second is uh, feelings or sensations. Because we have a body, we have visceral and constant emotional reactions to what happens in relation to our body. The third is perceptions. We have senses and minds that put together out of the raw data from our senses a kind of recognizable world that we are dependent on and that we have to cope with. Fourth aggregate is impulses or volitions, our, our responses to the world that perceptions create. And finally, fifth is consciousness, the field of awareness in which our living conscious life unfolds. Notice in the text that Buddha says that these are the, f these he refers to these as the five grasped or grasping aggregates. 
And that word, the five grasping aggregates, is really important here because the five aggregates, if they could operate freely without any grasping, would allow things to come and go as they do in a relaxed way. So if the five aggregates were not grasping, maybe things would not be so dissatisfactory, unsatisfactory. Because when something went, we would let it go. That would be okay. But when the five aggregates are grasping aggregates, that's when they become unsatisfactory and make our human life so fundamentally difficult. Because when the reality is that things both exist and do not in exist, then you can't grasp anything. There's nothing there that you could grasp. And when despite that you're trying to grasp things, you're going to have a very frustrating time of it. And eventually, you're going to suffer a lot. And, and if you build conduct and a way of life on that unsuccessful way of looking at things, you're going to have a lot of trouble with everything and everyone around you. So that's the first noble truth. And the second noble truth, so the first noble truth is there is suffering, basically there is dukkha. The second noble truth is there is a cause of this. Quoting from the Sutra, because there is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is desire which gives rise to fresh birth, bound up with relish and passion, running here and there, delighting in this and in that. In other words, sense desire, desire for existing and desire for not existing. So in this iteration of the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, and the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths over and over and over again. It's mentioned in the canon, I don't know how many, hundreds or thousands of times. In this iteration, the Buddha says that desire is the cause of suffering. In Mahayana Buddhism, again, we would say that the cause of suffering is not so much desire as what is at the root of desire, the cause of desire itself, which is the misapprehension of what the world and our life really is. We don't know. We don't understand. We don't experience that there's nothing to desire or grasp. So we go on desiring and grasping. Bound up, as he says, with relish and misplaced passion, running here and there, delighting in this and that. Along with this way of approaching things, 
comes a lot of anxiety, a lot of restlessness. As we said before, our mind is very restless because of this. Because we're always looking for something that we'll never find. So we're always thinking, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's the other thing. And it never is. But we're always rushing around trying to satisfy these various wants and needs and failing to do it. And this basic impulse ruins our lives. And I think it's true of all of us, e even those for whom it's an obsession. You know, we can see how bad that is. But even the rest of us who are perhaps not quite as obsessed, if we look closely enough, we see how true this is for us too. That it's also, for all of us, the basic cause of our suffering. And notice here that the Buddha recognizes that desire can be desire for life and the things of life, but it can also be desire for not existing. In other words, it can be the anguish of despair, which is a kind of also obsessive desire. Get me out of here. I can't bear this anymore. That's just as desiring as to say, I want more of this or more of that. To lust after things in the world or to lust after nothingness, both are the causes of suffering. The third truth is the end of suffering. Because he says, there is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. It is the complete fading away and cessation of this desire its abandonment and relinquishment, the freedom from and discarding of it. It's often pointed out that the Buddha approached our human suffering the way a doctor approaches a disease, and that the Four Noble Truths kind of follow uh, almost uh, an empirical model of how you would approach a disease. First, what is the disease? What are its characteristics? What are, what are its symptoms? What are its manifestations? And that's the first truth. Next, what's the cause of the disease? That's the second truth. Third, remove that cause, which will, fourth, cure the disease when you apply the proper medicine which in this case is the Eightfold Path. Because there is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. It is this noble Eightfold Path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right collectedness. So you see the four noble truths and the Eightfold Path really are one teaching. So Buddha is saying here something that is actually quite daring and radical in a way. He's saying that human suffering is caused by internal, not external conditions. Therefore, the effort to adjust the world in order to end suffering will never work.
only I had a better relationship. If only I lived in a different place. If only I had a different job. If only I was a different kind of person, I'll take a class. These things won't work, the Buddha says. The only thing that will work is a fundamental internal adjustment. And, and of course, it occurs to all of us that uh, we have been doing exactly the opposite of this. We have been working hard collectively, all of us together, all of humanity has been working very hard for several hundred years now to adjust the world so as to end suffering. And we have done all in all a very good job of this. We have reduced suffering enormously. Women die in childbirth in many parts of the world far less frequently than they did 300 years ago. Now there's pain management. So many deaths that used to be tremendously difficult can now be made less difficult. And many illnesses that before were commonly fatal are now curable and other illnesses are preventable. Maybe they've, they've even disappeared or they're treatable. And beyond this, you know, electricity, a heated home in the winter, refrigeration, cars, airplanes, education available not only to a handful of people but to many, many people, and on and on and on and on. How many ways have we improved our happiness and well-being by adjusting external things? On the other hand, it's now becoming sort of shockingly clear that the whole time that we were creating a much, much better material world, we didn't notice, had no idea actually, that we were slowly but surely changing the climate of the planet. We noticed this quite a while ago, but refused to take this seriously. So that now it is too late to do anything other than uh, mitigate the situation, which is something we urgently need to do, but we can't undo what we've already done without knowing we were doing it. I will not uh, recite today's very bad climate news, because you've all read about it already. It's very heartbreaking, and I think it's, on some fundamental level, disturbing. You know, even without knowing how disturbed we are, we are very disturbed. So that our just knowing about climate change and what it means is itself now a major cause of human suffering, of, of anguish, emotional anguish. Not to mention all the different things that actually physically take lives and destroy property and cause people to be homeless and so on and so on because of climate change. 
So, you know, we can't say that on the, on the, you know, in the big picture of things, we've succeeded altogether in adjusting the material world so as to reduce our suffering. And even if there were no climate change, we cannot say that our material progress has made us more civilized, more humane, or even more happy. We have not eliminated wars. We've, in fact, made them far worse. We have not eliminated injustice. We have not eliminated political oppression, mental and emotional illness, addiction, murder, on and on. So, there's a lot to be said for Buddha's analysis of human suffering, which encourages us to recognize that actually we are enormously empowered, each one of us, to change the way we live and understand our lives, and in doing so, to truly bring our suffering to an end. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we eliminate all difficulty in our lives. We still will age and die and suffer grief and so on. But it does mean that we can find within ourselves and within our communities ways to cope with difficulties, including social and political an environmental disaster that are poignant, beautiful, and meaningful. I think the Buddhist teaching gives us that kind of promise, and we really need to be cheered up and to feel a sense of agency here. In the next lengthy session, a section that I'm not going to quote in full, the Buddha reminds us that it is not enough to merely believe in these Four Noble Truths and think they really make sense and they're good ideas. Believing in them will not make any difference at all. Transformation takes effort over time. So the Buddha delineates for each of the Four Truths three stages. First, yes, that we do hear and understand. Second, that we commit ourselves to making a serious effort to transform our way of life. And third, that we do it, that we actually accomplish it. So he says three different aspects of each truth. And here's how he puts it. There is this noble truth of suffering. So for the first one, there is this noble truth of suffering such was the vision, insight, wisdom, knowing, and light that arose in me about things not heard before. This noble truth must be penetrated through by fully understanding suffering. So that's the second stage. Such was the vision, insight, wisdom, knowing, and light that arose in me about things not heard before. This noble truth has been penetrated through by fully understanding suffering. Such was the vision, insight, wisdom, knowing, and light that arose in me about things not heard before. Uh, Pali sutras are uh, 
enormously repetitive. I don't know of any translation that actually translates the whole sutra. They always say dot, 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 because the same thing is programmatically repeated in the same words over and over and over again. So uh, the Buddha repeats all these same words in relation to the other three uh, noble truths, and I won't read all that. But, but they do describe the first, these three stages that I mentioned. First, when he says, this is the noble truth of suffering, that is saying, okay, I hear it, I get it. Second, when he says, this noble truth must be penetrated by me, it means, I get it, I really have to commit myself to it. And third, when he says, this noble truth has been penetrated, means, yes, I have developed it, I have begun to live it, I have transformed So then, after he repeats all this four times, or all of the four truths, he then says, as long, bhikkhus, as these four noble truths in their 12 aspects, so that's the 12 aspects, three times four, were not seen clearly as they are, I did not declare to the world with its devas, maras, and brahmas, with its shramanas and brahmins, its monarchs and ordinary people, that I had realized the complete and perfect awakening. But as soon as these four noble truths in their twelve aspects were seen clearly as they all as they are, then I taught the world, with its devas, maras and brahmas, its shramanas and brahmins, its monarchs and ordinary people, that I had realized the complete and perfect awakening. The knowledge and the vision arose in me. Unshakable is my deliverance. This is the last birth. There is no further becoming. So here, the Buddha is saying pretty clearly that when he refers to what he calls awakening, he's not just talking about that dramatic and inspiring moment that we always tell when he sees the morning star, he's talking about, as he says here, a thorough development of full understanding of these four truths, including the Eightfold Path. And it was his unshakable faith in the vision of a life of practice and the ongoing living of that life that really was what he meant when he said, I am the Buddha, the Awakened One. As you know, in Pali Buddhism, um, the Buddha of the elders, Theravada Buddhism, the goal is described, the goal of practice is described as the Buddha describes it here. Once and for all, leaving this suffering life behind. Never to be reborn into it again. In Mahayana Buddhism, this goal was understood in a different way, reverses the metaphor. So the goal of practice then is not to be not reborn ever again, but the opposite, to be reborn again and again and again, but this time not out of unfinished business and thirsting desire, but instead out of love and compassion for others so that one can join others forever 
until everyone without exception has become a Buddha and all suffering is ended. The sutra ends with the hearts of the five ascetics finally being gladdened, it says, by what they hear. But especially one of them, Kondana, totally understands and gets what the Buddha is saying. That's how the sutra ends. And this is a very intimate point for us Zen practitioners. Because in our tradition, we understand that there's no such thing as teaching and practice unless it is shared. The definition of teaching and practice is shared teaching and practice. Until someone hears and understands, the Dharma wheel has not turned. So, just like a Zen master here, Buddha rejoices when he recognizes that Kondana has understood. And therefore, the Dharma wheel turns. Not because Buddha spoke, but because Buddha spoke and Kondanya understood. Turning the wheel of the Dharma is not what the Buddha does, it's what they do together, just like Buddha and Mahakashapa from our traditional story. And what is it that Kandanya understands? Here's what it says in the Sutra. Clear insight into Dhamma arose in venerable Kandanya thus. Whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. In other words, things exist and don't exist at the same time. This is what Kandanya understood. And this, according to the Sutra, is, in essence, the profound salvific vision of the Buddha. Things come, things go. Know this, accept it, Affirm it, be amazed by it, love it, live it, and suffering ends. And the sutra ends with the rejoicing of all the non-material beings in the various heavens who wanted the Buddha to teach, and now finally they're thrilled that he's done it for the benefit of the whole world. And so uh, I will read you some of this. Uh, it would go on for many, many pages if we said all the repetitions, but just to give you a flavor. When the wheel of Dhamma had been set rolling by the Blessed One, the devas of the earth raised the cry. At Varanasi, in the deer park at Isipatana, the matchless wheel of Dhamma has been set rolling by the Blessed One not to be stopped by any Shramana or Brahman or Deva or Mara or Brahma or anyone in the world. And when they heard that what the earth devas just said, the devas of the realm of the four great kings, another realm of devas, category of devas, they cried out at Varanasi, 
in the deer park at Isipatana, the matchless wheel of Dhamma has been set rolling by the Blessed One, not to be stopped by any Shramana or Brahma or Deva or Mara or Brahma or anyone in the world. And when they heard the cry of the Devas of the realm of the four great kings, then the Devas of the realm of the 33 also cried out with one voice the same thing, which I will now not repeat. And when they heard the cries of the devas of the 33 realm, the Yama devas, the devas in the death realms, cried out with one voice. And this goes on for many, many different kinds of creatures. I was thinking today, you know, I think that maybe because we have so many like, think of all the vocabulary words that describe things in the material world that didn't exist in the Buddhist time, like microchip. You know, there was no word for microchip, right? Electricity, there was no word for electricity. Light bulb, refrigerator, and all the things, I mean, most of the things we talk about wouldn't have, didn't exist in the Buddhist time. That's why there were so many other things that existed that were invisible, that they had words for and categories for. We don't have them anymore because we're too busy with our microchips and stuff like that to see these other creatures or have any idea of them. It's really marvelous, actually, these, all these different creatures that I'm sure people actually experienced in some way that we don't understand anymore. Anyway, that is the end of the sutra. And thank you for listening to my uh, exposition of it, which was great fun for me to read and think about it again, even though it's so elementary, we all know all these things. Now, um, let's get together in our groups. And again, because we're starting up seminar again, I will uh, go over that very briefly, quickly, the kind of ground, rule, ground rules and purpose of these groups. So we usually talk in groups of three, and um, we, we do it different ways, but the sort of most classical way is each person gets to talk for about four minutes and just express themselves on the question that I'm going to ask you in a moment, and to do so in a way that's as honest and as exploratory for yourself as you can. So in other words, not to think about what would these other people like to hear from me or what would be a good Buddhist thing to say, but rather, this is what I really think. And in order for you to feel confident that you can do that, uh, possibly with people you don't know, uh, is that we all agree to be confidential about these groups, really to basically forget about it after we've heard it, so that everybody can feel like the other two people in the group are listening with maximum generosity, minimum judgment, and absolutely no repeating what they heard. And that way everybody can really, sometimes you learn a lot from what comes out of your mouth. And certainly the other two people listening to you, not asking you questions, not even nodding their heads maybe, just listening, will learn a lot. And so then we do first person, second person, third person, and, uh, and you, you are, remember, asked to speak to the question from your own heart, not to comment on 
what other people have said. We're not giving, this is not about giving each other feedback in any way, but just listening to each other. So that's, that about covers it, I think. Okay, so with that, um, we in the room here can just self-organize into groups of three, trying our best to uh, some old timers, including the newer people, so that it's not, not all, all old timers talking together and newer people talking together. Okay, so you can organize yourself into groups of three. And on the screen here, um, whoever is our Zoom master, is it Shufi tonight? It's Shufi. Shufi, yeah. Shufi, Shufi is expert at throwing everybody into their groups. Before she does that, though, I, I know from experience that many of you will disappear. So we're going to give you a, a couple of minutes to go away because we don't want you in a group when you're not there, right? So um, go away now, those of you who are going to go away. And we'll take two or three minutes for that, and then Shofi will make the groups. But here in the room, we can go ahead and organize ourselves. Oh, what's the question? Yeah, oh yeah, what's the question? Good, good, good idea, yeah. What's the question? Your experience of the Four Noble Truths, how you have understood them over your time practicing Dharma. Was this what brought you to Dharma to begin with? Or was it something else and you kind of like discovered them later? And if it turns out that there's somebody here who never heard any of this before, and you actually thought you were coming to an AA meeting, <laughs> you didn't realize it was a Dharma seminar, then, assuming you heard what I said, what do you think about it? Okay? So everybody get into groups of three and, and let's, let's talk and take our time with it. Thank you, everybody, and thanks, everybody online, for being, being here. We'll see all of you who remain after the